So many people never see themselves represented in the classroom. PhD programs offer little, if any, pedagogy training, let alone having to do with intersectionality or decoloniality. We live in a time where old classroom conventions and ways of thought are proving to be radically insufficient. New approaches are desperately needed. Hello, this is Justin. And this is Ashley. Welcome to Pedagogies for Peace, intersectional and decolonial teaching podcast. An audio series that foregrounds critical pedagogies with a focus on intersectionality and decoloniality. We come from varied backgrounds. From political science, feminist international relations, native studies, critical media studies, American studies, and ethnic studies. From philosophy, peace studies, gender studies, and political theory to bring you insights from thought leaders and offer glimpses of what could be. From transformations inside the classroom to rethinking what is possible. Hi, welcome everyone. Today we are talking with Zach Casey, who is Associate Professor and Chair of Educational Studies at Rhodes College in Memphis. His research in in general and his teaching focus on critical whiteness studies and teacher education, anti-capitalism, and critical pedagogy. And one of the reasons that I'm super, super excited to talk to him is because his first book, which is called A Pedagogy of Anti-Capitalist Anti-Racism, is awesome. It was awarded the 2018 Outstanding Book Award from the Society of Professors of Education. And I'm just really excited to talk to you, Zach. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. I was wondering if maybe you could start, you know, normally we ask people to start by just describing their pedagogy, but since you're an actual scholar of pedagogy, maybe you want to start by walking us through the overall contours of of your book and your theory about pedagogy. Absolutely, right? So, you know, pedagogy is such a taken for granted concept and there's so much more depth there than than I think many many fields give it. Right. So pedagogy, a surface level definition is going to be the art or science of teaching. Right. So when we think about a qualifier that I like to use or a descriptor, I really like to use is a pedagogical orientation or a pedagogical approach. And, and what do we mean by that? Right. So critical pedagogy, we're you know really, really wedded to this notion that any and all acts of teaching and learning are always already political. They are inherently political. Right. Any choice of making decisions about what to include, what to exclude we're in the realm of politics. And thus, when we're talking about pedagogy and really being intentional and pedagogical, we're really talking about intentionally political teaching and learning, right? So kind of of the arc of the book and, and what I'm working through there, I'm really interested in the ways that the economic system itself limits our capacities for what's possible in classrooms, what's possible in in teacher education, in K-12, in higher ed, and really particularly where where the limits of of our anti-racist and social justice kinds of projects, right, where we hit those dead ends because of neoliberal capitalism. And so much of this work even too, right, has this very, very kind of neoliberal character to it of anything that we do that's actually, you know, kind of successful or advancing life chances for folks of color there's almost a kind of immediate move then of like, okay, how are you going to scale this up? How are we going to put this out to the masses? How are you going to make money on this? How are you going to capitalize on this? And so I think in those kinds of ways, right, so much of work around teacher professional development, around anti-racist sort of trainings writ large, I have a lot of problems with that concept and we can talk about that later maybe, right, fall into this trap of we can only go so far because. And so 
thinking about what kinds of spaces are available to us that aren't just completely saturated in capitalism. And perhaps there aren't many of those, but there's perhaps spaces that don't have to be saturated in capitalism to quite the same extent. Um, and that's a big part of what keeps me hopeful about, uh, you know, the radical potentiality of what can happen in classrooms, right? I, I, I take a lot of heart from Bell Hooks saying that, you know, classrooms are a space where paradise could be created. And so lots of my stuff is working to juxtapose, right? How do we think about schools or, or sort of institutions of education Right. As you know, these historically oppressive institutions, particularly public education, was created in the United States to kill and nullify difference. Right. To take anybody from anywhere on Earth and turn them into an American that would have these particular inculcated sets of values. And yet classrooms, right, have this radical other kinds of potential. Right. So if schools themselves, right, we could think of as the master's tools, perhaps classrooms offer a different kind of potentiality. And so when I think about my pedagogy and, and, you know, what I'm wanting to do in the classroom, what I'm wanting to do kind of in my broader work and engagement with others, I'm really trying to think about opportunities for the self-appropriation of learning. That is, it's pretty meaningless if somebody just tells you something, right? We, we kind of get into like a banking education sort of problem there, right? Well, I've explained this to you and now you just know it. No, right? Like our learning needs to feel like ours, right? We need to be able to own that. It needs to connect to us. So I think really thinking about rather than you know, what is it that I'm teaching or what am I going to do? I really try to orient that far more around what kinds of experiences am I hoping to create or offer or facilitate for the folks that I'm working with that's going to allow them to bring their whole, full and actual selves into this work and to make connections and to make scaffolds for themselves. And so the, the book details quite a bit of that, really kind of particularly in the last couple chapters is, is where I'm really wrestling with what does this look like in, in college classrooms? What does this look like in teacher education in particular? You mentioned that these university settings are saturated with capitalism and these different forces that you mentioned. What about sort of on the individual educator level? What are some of those spaces that you said they don't have to be saturated? You know, it's interesting to think about what we can get up to in universities that gets us away from the kind of pay to play model that so much of this happens in, right? So what do I mean by that? I think there's spaces that, you know, and I'm going to interrupt myself, right? Lots of what I'm about to say is going to fall into this trap of work that you're not being paid for, right? And kind of doing things that are going above and beyond. It feels important to sort of call out how much of that falls on faculty and staff of color, how much of that falls on women faculty and staff and to a disproportionate extent. I don't think that means that we shouldn't be engaging more. I think that means we need to invite more people in. And we need to find ways of actually recognizing that labor and that work, right? So for instance, I, I work at a pretty small college. We're, we're able to have a pretty intimate relationship amongst faculty across disciplines. That side is really beautiful, but where we can you know, get in trouble a bit, right? And, and really start abusing some of that time at a predominantly white institution, historically white supremacist institution that barred students of color to even access it until 1964. Students of color weren't even allowed to live on campus until 1968 under the federal housing restrictions changing. Given that saturated legacy, many of our faculty of color have to do this kind of double duty, double burden of coaching, supporting, helping other faculty how is it that I engage these kinds of questions? You know, I'm a chemistry professor. What are my responsibilities? What kinds of things should I be doing here? What should I be, what should I be on guard for? And I think universities, and, and we can do more, K-12 can do this too. We can do more to recognize that work, to create actually like sort of formal titles, formal recognition, ways of thinking about that in terms of things that count for service, right? So all of that is the kind of pretext to this answer. I, I think we need to do things that don't look like a sort of, I'm paying for a credential and I am here to get credentialed, 
right? In those kinds of spaces, I, th- I think a lot of things are already foreclosed. We're sort of already in that, that kind of capitalism. The point of this is so that I can get this kind of thing, so that I can have these kinds of opportunities that happen after, so on and so forth. You know, lots of times the most beautiful things that happen to us are in those informal spaces, right? Things that aren't actually, you know, EDUC 200, whatever, right? But rather those kinds of, you know, what's the work that we're doing with student organizations and particularly like affinity groups? What's the kinds of stuff that we're doing to, to like interrupt or, or, you know, get in the way of some of these, you know, sort of historically privileged kinds of service orientations that we have, right? So one of the things that, that, that I do at Rhodes, we have a long tradition of service at Rhodes. We have a lot of different scholarship programs that are tied to a certain extent or a certain amount of engagement in the community. We're also a you know, majority black working class city. And so there's all kinds of spaces for this kind of like neoliberal service kinds of spaces to go, right? And so one of the things that I've been you know, really fortunate to be able to do and, and invited to do and part of that uncompensated labor side, right, is being able to actually work with students kind of in those early phases as they're starting to engage community to think more robustly about what is it that you are doing when you are working in these spaces, right? What does it mean when you pull up and into that parking lot and your car is a quite a bit different than the other cars in that parking lot. How are you being read in those kinds of spaces? What does it mean that you get to come and go from different kinds of neighborhoods, right? How do we think about, you know, areas that are rendered as dangerous, right? And, you know, a dangerous place and a place that, you know, one really shouldn't go, all in air quotes there, because I know this is being audio recorded. There's people who live there. There's children who live there, right? Many of the folks that we're working with, the people who love them most in the world and care about them most in the world are doing everything they possibly can to protect these folks, Live right there. What does it mean when we show up with all of those deficit orientations then, right? And so, you know, being able to do a little bit more of that that front-sided work, particularly thinking about folks who are coming from, you know, historically privileged backgrounds and sort of how is it that I can be humble in these spaces? How is it that I can actually like work, in, you know, intentionally to respond to community needs rather than showing up kind of with my own agenda? Look, like I'm here to get my hours. I'm here to do the service thing. I'm here to do this stuff that I have to do for my organization or for my scholarship and whatever else dip in, dip out, and then I'm done. What does it look like to actually respond? What does it look like to, to sort of know, right, particularly in bodies like mine, right, as, as a white man, there are times that just being in this body is citationally oppressive, right? Regardless of any work that I've done previously, regardless of what I've studied, different kinds of, you know, anti-racist initiatives and whatever else that I've been a part of, what, you know, we need to know, I, I really take a lot of sort of solace and at the same time caution from Kevin Kumashiro's work on this, right? Educational spaces are always already engaged in issues of oppression, right? There's not like a moment where like, ooh, there's the microaggression, now oppression is in the room. No, oppression was always already in the room. And the same thing is true when we're doing community kinds of engagement, right? And so thinking about that, right? How is it that I can actually enter these spaces with a whole lot more humility? How is it that I can be responsive? How can I think about my engagement less as this thing that I'm sort of doing for me or to appease something or to check a box and more on this side of how is it that I can think about this as research, like resource redistribution? How can I think about this as moving things that are from this historically privileged space like a university to historically marginalized spaces like community centers? daycares, schools, so on and so forth. Maybe you could walk us through a little bit of like how you shape that framing for your students. You know, I think many of us have students who walk into our classrooms being like, I paid $60,000 for this education. And like, I'm here in order to accomplish a very, like I have a a goal orientation here. Mm And some of us, you know, not every single one of our students, their goal is like having a world transformative experience, critiquing all of the institutions that have 
opened access to the the university for them. And so I was just wondering if you could walk us through a little bit, like what does your pedagogy look like in the classroom in terms of shifting students' orientation towards something like resource redistribution rather than credentialization? Yeah, I thought that's a great question, Ashley. A lot of the time where I start on this is coming out of Paulo Freire's work, right? So Freire is convinced that in oppression, both the oppressors and oppressed are dehumanized. And where I think we can go from that is is actually a pretty radical kind of reorienting lots of the ways that we think about service or, or even kind you know more radical kinds of projects like redistribution, right? So a kind of you know low level white anti-racist project. All right, so I recognize my relative privilege. That makes me feel lousy, and like I need something to exercise that, or I need a way to like do something to respond to that. And what is that orientation, right? So I'm actually like even you know in that recognition of privilege, I'm still sort of refiguring or reiterating that very same kind of hierarchy that says white supremacy is something that's bad for people of color. I'm a white person, so I need to go help those people who are suffering in white supremacy. The reorientation, I think, particularly in this context for for thinking about working with white students or historically privileged students, is thinking about the ways that racism and white supremacy limit their own life chances, distort their own humanity, limit what is possible for them, right? Sometimes I'll I'll even kind of tease students a little bit about, like, you need to be selfish about your anti-racism, right? This isn't just about, like, oh, I need to help these people over there because they've got this and they've got that, like, no, they don't need you, right? Those are, those are fully functioning, fully capable kinds of people, right? If you're going to do this work, if you're going to be worried about these things, you need to put yourself in the center of this and figure out, articulate for yourself, where are you limited as a white person in a white supremacist reality, right? And in some ways too, right, that invites or kind of opens up areas to think about shame, to think about guilt, to think about these ways of, you know, I don't like feeling like this. And you know, a, a kind of like reframing of some of these classic resistance kinds of tactics, right? You know, I, I never owned slaves or I'm Jewish or, you know, my parents were immigrants to the United States, right? I don't, I don't share these kinds of histories. Like, I mean, all of that kind of can be true, but it doesn't do anything about complicity, right? It doesn't actually shift anything about what it means citationally to be white. And that, I think, is another kind of useful way, too. It's another uh, Kumashiro citation here, right? What makes something oppressive? Right. For Kumashiro, something is oppressive if it cites past oppressions. Right. And that's why, particularly, somebody who works with a lot of white teachers, right? One of the things as teachers we have to recognize is that we look like, we sound like, we stand in for a whole host of experiences and a whole host of other social actors that the folks that we're working with have experiences with. And sort of like lamenting that or, or wishing that weren't the case doesn't do anything about it. Right. So, rather, right. That's where we actually start, is thinking about where are the ways in which you've actually experienced this? What are the ways that cut across or get into you, right? Where is your humanity limited in these kinds of ways? Then what does it look like to respond, right? And in that way, that kind of selfish orientation to anti-racism, I think, gets us out of lots of these different kinds of like saviorist kinds of kinds of framings for, you know, why am I working with historically marginalized communities? Why am I working with folks of color? Why am I working with, you know, queer solidarity groups, so on and so forth, Right you know, this kind of hierarchical because I feel bad for, because I'm in a better position. Rhetorically, sometimes this sounds like, you know, I want to give, you know, I've had so much and I want to give something back. Oh, oh, right. Good, good capitalist metaphor, it's saturated, right? Right. No, like rather, this is about the limits on my own humanity. These are about the ways that I can't actually like fully thrive and live up to my full potentiality 
because of all of these structural determinants, because of all of these restrictions on what's actually possible for us. And I think that really gives us a different kind of solidarity, a different kind of way in. It certainly doesn't, you know, automatically erase or invisibilize all of those citational oppressions, all of those, you know, as I was saying earlier, right, like showing up, you know, hegemonically masculine, white guy, beard, long hair, you know, maybe I get a like offhand, like, oh, he looks like Jesus with a belly or something kinds of comments, right? I'm still there, right? But it gives me a kind of different set of like, even kind of like reflexive positions to stay there, right? And to stay invested in this work, because it's not actually even about all of these other kinds of interpersonal kinds of pieces. No, right? This is bigger. This is about me. This is about what can I do to struggle against these kinds of things for my own humanity. And in that way, right, automatically, right, I have to then be in solidarity with whatever communities that I'm working with, with whomever I'm engaged. Hopefully folks who've invited me, hopefully folks who are you know, excited about these kinds of, you know, inter broader solidarities, I guess, is, is, is where I'll land there. I think there's more opportunities for more kinds of solidarity if we're able to move out of, uh, you know, the saviorist privilege as everything kinds of paradigms. And so, you know, so what do we do to that end of my classes? We read about this, right? So I really love the Reverend Danica's Learning to Be White is a, a book that really, really opened up uh, kind of this whole other orientation and a way of thinking about white racial identity in late capitalism in, in a really different way than just this kind of, you know, all Peggy McIntosh, all white privilege, you know, kind of zero intentionality to social class, to other kinds of identifiers right? Everybody is always already privileged is kind of a dead end. What do you do with that, right? Well, I recognize it and maybe at best I can confess it. And so Thandika is a theologian and, and is able to read that back into this, you know, very old, very problematic history and tradition of confessing. And then what does that confession do, right? What is it actually doing materially to impact the life chances of, of folks of color? There's nothing there, Right. And so rather than doing all of this kind of navel gazing and woe was me and self-flagellation for, for white folks, right, there's a different way in. And it doesn't mean that we don't experience racial privilege, but but it means we need that qualifier and need to emphasize that, right? We experience racial privilege. Experiencing racial privilege doesn't mean everything in your life is good all the time. And even further, right, it doesn't mean that you can't be worried about other folks and even yourself in ways, right, that cut across lots of those kinds of privileges. Thanks, Zach. I really like where you're going in the sense that we're all complicit. I love that idea of the, the ways that white supremacy and oppression limit our own life chances, our own life experience. You know, over the last what year and a half, maybe even a handful of years, race has had a lot more traction, fortunately, in a lot of the conversations we're having at universities. And universities are trying their best to respond. And I think it's fair to say that at least folks in social science, right, we're in a Peace Studies Department, I know you also speak to Peace Studies in some way, you believe that most everyone will be okay with embarking on this process of, of reflexivity, trying to figure out this different set of questions that you're pointing to. But a little bit ago, you mentioned the chemistry professor, right? And so I want to ask a little bit about how do you have these conversations on with, with folks who are a bit more hard science-oriented, who haven't read you know, things like uh, Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology, this infusing of technology that's infused with race, how do you speak to those folks who don't necessarily see that reflexivity as a necessary part of their teaching and research? This is a great question. And I, I think this too, right, like it's kind of coming back a little bit to the, the critique of training I hinted at. So maybe let's jump there, right? So I get so disappointed, like when my own students, right, who are studying education, come up with, you know, what, what's our response? What do we need to do? We need trainings, right? 
training is something that we can do for a dog, right? Training is, is we could maybe think about training as something that we like, like potty training, right? Or, you know, you're learning to use the facilities and things like that, right? These are things we can be trained on. But something like anti-racist pedagogy in a chemistry classroom, how on earth could I actually articulate, well, the first step is do this, and then the second step is do that. How nonsensical, right? So a lot of times in the STEM spaces, right, really it's not going to be, there's ways in which the content, right, of course can be connected back. And lots of that is thinking about, you know, where does this come from, right? What is what is the history of this project? Who was worried about this? What's the kind of like history of this particular discipline and this particular exploration? Who did it and why? What were the institutional context of what was going on at those spaces? Who was excluded? Who was included? Who could actually be there? Who could participate, right? So there's a kind of quality, I, I think, in STEM that opens itself up to a kind of social history of content that's a way of actually including even if it's still exclusive, right? So if the entire history of this field is dominated by cis white men who were at universities that were restricted or perhaps even like nullified, no women could access it, no people of color could access it at the time, that matters for those scientific discoveries because it gives us a sense of what those social contexts were there. And if I'm thinking about these are folks that are gonna go on to become chemists, these are folks that are going on to medical school, so on and so forth, those social contexts are, are wildly important. The other thing I usually coach with STEM is, again, rather than thinking about, you know, how is it that I can make, you know, these bonds, but, you know, molecular bonds, how can I connect that to a social justice project? I, I don't think that is the project, right? It has far more to do with what's actually happening in your classroom, right? So an old kind of like very, very normalized uh, tradition in a lot of lab-based STEM higher ed spaces is students get to self-select lab groups, right? So what happens when students self-select lab groups, particularly at institutions that are predominantly white, that have historically marginalized and excluded folks of color, all kinds of racial stereotypes. And this is actually going to cut across in terms of gender too, right? So when I look up in my STEM class and I'm looking around, okay, who are going to be my good partners? And the professors made clear that these are going to be my lab groups for the entire semester. Who do I want to be in a group with, right? And who are the folks that are likely to look up and not have anybody making eye contact with them? How can I actually stave that off? How can I get rid of that? How can I be you know, sort of better and more intentional about who's working with whom and really, really thinking about what would be the ideal group dynamic and makeup in my classes, right? Particularly on that lab side. Another kind of piece would really be to invite students to make connections, right? So a lot of times, right, I think particularly as professors, K-12 folks feel this too, but you know, in my experience, a lot of K-12 folks are, are better at being humble and better at saying, I don't know than higher ed people are, right? So you're a professor, you're supposed to be all knowing, you're supposed to have it all figured out and then you're presenting this for these students paying 60,000 a year as, as Ashley alluded to, right? What happens when I say I don't know? What happens when I invite students to actually make those connections? What happens if I create opportunities to get the kinds of feedback that would actually help me improve? If part of what I'm trying to do is to be more anti-racist as a chemistry instructor, how much have I actually asked my students what would help them? Right. I, so often, I think as instructors, right, we have all these things that we wish we knew about our students. And then, you know, like teacher professional development kinds of stuff. I, you know, I get to be the snarky one and turn around and say, well, have you asked them or how have you asked them? Right. So super, super vulnerable. Like, hey, everybody in this lecture hall, you know, like, hey, you know, raise your hand and, and tell us if you think, you know, something that I'm doing or something that I've set up isn't going well. I'm not raising. I don't want to jeopardize my ground. I want to lose this relationship. I'm not I'm not touching that one. Right. But if I can create, I mean, we have all kinds of opportunities for anonymous surveying, you know, different, like I, I kind of do low tech stuff a lot of times in my classes. So I always do a fake midterm, 
the fake midterm is very fun. One, because my classes never have tests or quizzes. And so when I put on the schedule up on the board midterm, I get all kinds of like, yo, oh, people are feeling it. Like, what is going on? Like, yo, Casey's giving us a midterm. What is even happening? I didn't think there were tests here. And on the one hand, again, because I'm working mostly with folks who want to be teachers, it's a nice way to like teach and model why pop quizzes are nonsensical, why it makes absolutely no sense ever if you're trying to assess what students know and understand to spring an assessment on them, right? But two, it's a fake midterm. So the only rule is that you can't put your name on it and there's only two questions, what's going well and what should we change? And I do that at the halfway point because then it's not too late to actually do something and change something. Now, when I do this, it's almost always the pattern. Just about anything somebody has said that we should change, somebody else or multiple somebody else's has said it's something they really like, right? So I, I get a lot of stuff, but, you know, we, we spend too much time in small groups in this class and not enough time in large discussion. And then, you know, next page. I love how much time we get to spend in small groups because I don't really like speaking up in front of the large group and I feel like I get to learn more from my peers this way, so on and so forth, right? But I think something that we have to do too, I usually call it the state of the union, and that's the next class after I've gotten all these. And I work to respond to all of the comments around what we should change. I, I, don't, I try not to dwell on like what people think is going well because it feels self-aggrandizing or something like, look how great I'm doing. You like this course. Yay. But, but rather, right? Like, so people who say we're reading too much, let's talk about why I don't think we are and talk about some strategies and, and ways that you can actually navigate the rest of the semester if you're feeling just crunched. Let's, you know, so most of my, you know, like a foundations of education class, a lot of times we'll read like two chapters, two articles per class. Almost always one is a little bit more like kind of like forefronted and the other one is kind of support. I can tell you that I can tell you, Hey, spend more time on this one, spend more time on that one, so on and so forth. But then I also work to explain why I don't like to do that because we're savvy students, particularly at institutions like mine. If your teacher tells you pay special attention to pages 33 through 35, savvy, busy young person that you are, what are you going to read? You're going to read pages 33 through 35, maybe even 33 through 35 twice so that you show up feeling really, really savvy about those two pages. And now, you know, one through 40, other than those few pages are getting totally left out. I don't, I'm not interested in having people read the stuff that I want them to read. I want them to read as their whole and actual selves and bring that to the class. So I try to go out of my way to say almost nothing about what we're doing the next class right? I want you to come in like as yourself, kind of blank slate without anything forefronted from me so that you can read as an actual reader rather than as a student. And the kind of compromise that we're going to make is I'm going to ask you to read perhaps a little bit more than you would in other classes, but the compromise is going to be, I'm never going to give you a quiz on it. I'm never going to give you a test on it. I don't need you to read for what you think I want you to take from it. I want you to read as yourself and take from it what you will. Super relatable, the like conflicting feedback. <laughs> I find every semester I get exactly the same. We do too many activities. We don't do enough activities. We should do more reading. We should do less reading. I always love those conversations with students yep. after the midterm feedback where I come back and I'm like, hi, I can't do all of these things at the same time, but I'm just going to walk you through how, like, how I think we can balance these competing concerns. I find they're like, Students generally, in my experience, are really understanding that, like, you're teaching to a group. You're not their, like, personal tutor. Oh, so relatable. No, that's great. And, I, you know, the group dynamic can, can shift and move, too, right? So it's been a while. You know, the nice thing about being at a liberal arts college, I, I think my biggest class I've had at Rhodes in seven years was 28. That's quite a big different than some of the big state schools that I was at, especially coming through graduate school, right? So 
you know, when I compare it to a hundred person lecture hall version of foundations of education, that one, it's a whole lot harder to do that customization, to really find ways of building individual voices into the class. And I, you know, I've got some strategies. I like using note cards. I like having students rather than doing something like, you know, what were the three things from, you know, slide four and now we're on slide 40 and maybe you remember, maybe you don't kinds of stuff, like check for understanding kinds of stuff. I don't like that in big lecture halls. I love asking people, what questions are you left with? Right? Like, what are you, what are you thinking about? And, and turn that into a question and then take that forward. The next lecture, I'm going to start with those student questions, right? And, and a way of responding there. And so, you know, if the dynamic of the space is that it's just so big, you know, everybody raise your hand and I'm like calling on individual people. Sometimes the dynamic in those kinds of classes too, if there's like discussion sections and stuff like that, like, you know, Sage on the stage at the front might not even know the people's names in the room. And so you're just calling it like, yes, you with the red shirt, right? Like that, that's weird. It doesn't mean we're not responsible for building in student voices. We just have to get a little bit more creative about where those voices are coming from. And it's always kind of a special thing when like, when your question makes the PowerPoint, right? And it's like, oh, you know, that, like, that's what I wrote down. And, you know, inevitably, as you were just alluding to, Ashley, right, group of 100, there's going to be multiple people probably with the same question. That makes it pretty easy on my end to be like, all right, that's definitely going to be one of the questions we're at the forefront here. And it's another way of kind of like building in some of that interest. I think in smaller kinds of courses, there's actually a lot of opportunities for students to really put their mark on it and, and to be really like customizing in what they do. So as a for instance, all of my classes land where I give up the reins and become a student and my students become the instructors. So in groups, they choose and select a text that they want to bring into the course that they see as relevant, that they want to teach with. I always have to emphasize it's not, it's not a presentation. It's you facilitating class, making sure that something you wanted to get smarter about this semester is going to be included, right? Because I put these 16 weeks together long before I knew who was going to be in here, before I knew you, before I knew what was actually happening in the world that we needed to take up. And yeah, that's not necessarily like that individual, individual level. It's, it's still like a group kinds of project. But, you know, almost always students are able to read all kinds of their own personal insights. You know, a lot of times in, in my institution, we're able to focus on things that are really pressing and really happening, like right now at Rhodes on campus. You know, so we've been able to do a lot of things around sexual assault and consent, for instance. We've, we've had a, a, you know, COVID and, and whatever else has slowed this down. But for, for years, we've had an epidemic of sexual assault on our campus and trying to think more intentionally about how we respond. There's lots of, of you know, things like Take Back the Night and some of these like sort of larger symbolic protest kinds of, kinds of spaces, I think could be really impactful and can be really meaningful. But it, it's something that we do every year that doesn't seem to shift the tenor of what's happening around sexual assault on our campus. So what other kinds of things do we need to be doing? And something that actually came out of, I don't want to say it was you know, completely because of a, you know, a group lesson, a student project in my class. But a couple of years ago, we actually finally had some traction on a large group of students completely sort of like staying away from our historically white supremacist fraternities on campus and, and not going to frat parties. You know, boycott the frats was, was kind of the, the call, right? And there were op-eds in the student newspaper and thinking about what that looked like and why we would be doing this and tying all of that, again, back to toxic masculinity and sexual assault and rape culture and some of these other kinds of pieces. It's so much more impactful to be able to, you know, study what you're worried about in classroom spaces. And so, you know, I, I think as instructors, right, particularly in, you know, interdisciplinary kinds of fields, right, educational studies is certainly an interdisciplinary field, peace studies is, is an interdisciplinary field this way, we have a lot of room to actually build in and make space. What is it that you're worried about? What are you losing sleep about right now? What do you wish you were smarter about? 
that you could be in like a formal educational space to like get some scaffolds and get some support and get better at it. Why not make opportunity? You know, why not formalize that? Why not just make that part of our courses? And so that's really where that project comes from and, and why I've been doing that for years. Kind of stepping back just a bit yeah. there, Zach, right? Your own description, right? Long hair, bearded, white guy with kind of looking like Jesus, maybe a little belly. I'm interested in learning a bit about your own journey. What was your experience to come to questions that are so meaningful like this? Because there's so many people with similar embodiments who don't. And so whether that's an experience or a book or anything, how did you get to these questions? Yeah, that's, I appreciate that, Justin. And I, you know, in so many ways, this is a really important question, right? Why are you worried about this? Why are you doing this, right? So I tell this story actually in the first chapter of my first book a bit, but the, a story goes like this. So my favorite instructor in undergrad was running for city council a few years later and reached out to me and was curious. I was in graduate school at the time. And so I think he intuited that that meant I had enough time to do this and asked me to be his campaign manager. And Corey's African-American in Tempe, Arizona. So I guess for anybody who's not familiar, there historically has not been a large and robust presence of black folks in Arizona. There's especially not been a large portion of black folks in elected politics in Arizona. So our campaign, we were, we were full of gumption and full of energy and did not have a lot of resources. So our primary tactic was knocking on doors and knocking on doors, knocking on doors, knocking on doors. Uh, this is 07, 08. Uh, so this is the, the first Obama election. And Corey looks nothing like Barack Obama, but was regularly questioned. I, I would say at least once a month was asked if he was Barack Obama just to give a sense of, of kind of where Arizona was at in terms of black politicians, right? So, but the, the sort of moment that, that haunts me, that I'm, I'm still stuck on, and it was one particular afternoon, and it happened to me three times that afternoon. The pattern went like this. So I was there in my campaign polo shirt, and I had my brochures, and the brochure had Corey's, you know, beautiful smile and, and you know, big grin in his suit on the bottom. And so I ring the doorbell. Also maybe important too, right? Like we were working off of, you know, a, a set of data, that gave us a sense of who folks had voted for in the past, right? And so even though city council is a nonpartisan election, if you'd voted only Republican for the last 10 years, we weren't knocking on your door, right? So we were really only knocking on doors that we had a sense that people had voted Democrat in the past. And three different times on this one particular afternoon, the pattern went like this. I knock on the door, ring the doorbell. Hi, I'm, I'm here for Corey Woods for Tempe City Council. Uh, just dropping off some information, making sure, you know, if you're, you're not registered or, you know, just making sure that you know when the you know, special election is and so on and so forth. And the pattern goes, I, you know, they sort of greet me friendly enough, you know, perhaps a smile and whatever else. I hand them the brochure and everything changes when they see I'm there supporting a black candidate right? If it, I'm no longer welcome on the porch. No, 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 I'm not interested, right? One woman just like flat out, like refused to take the brochure, stepped backwards and shut her door. And so I'm sitting there reeling from this, like I, you know, and, and my politics, even at the time, I was quite a ways left of Corey. Um, Corey today is the mayor of, of Tempe, by the just for context. So he became the first ever black elected city council member in Tempe city history, and now is the first black mayor in Tempe city history. And in that moment, right, it was so, it was jarring to me, right? I couldn't like, it felt like a kind of racism that I didn't really feel like I'd had a lot of intimate familiarity with. I grew up in a suburb of Seattle, Washington. I, you know, a majority white school, but I had friends of color my entire life. I grew up around a lot of folks of color. And the, the, this kind of like abject, just like explicit white supremacist orientation threw me, 
right? And so, you know, after you know, we're done knocking on doors or whatever else, getting back together for the debrief, right? And I'm telling Corey this story. And, you know, he's just got like, I don't think he was smiling necessarily, but he kind of had this like, oh, you know, this naive young white guy that I hired here. Like, come on, Zach, what, what do you mean you weren't expecting this? What do, you, what do you mean you didn't think this was going to happen? Of course, this is in this city. Of course, this is here. So then I had to figure it out, right? Why is it? How can it be possible that somebody could actually like vote for Democrats in a place like Arizona and be so staunchly anti-black? I don't even want to engage. I don't even want to take your brochure. I'm not going to take, you know, 10 seconds to even go throw this thing away. I want you off my porch now. So it really kind of shifted a lot of what I was thinking about for what I wanted to do for graduate school. And I became just kind of obsessed, I'll I'll say honestly, with trying to figure out what the hell does this mean for white racial identity, right? What does this mean for my identity? You know, how is it that I'm the same group as her, right? How is it that I'm read in the same ways as her, right? How is it that this, right? And then, you know, getting into the the research a, a bit more and things like that, and really kind of starting to think about my own orientation to lots of this work. So I was somebody that when I read Peggy McIntosh, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack of White Privilege for the first time, I was like, yes, this, like, this is, she's talking about me. This explains so much of my reality. This gives me a language for this, right? I, I kind of didn't know how to talk about this until I found this piece. Wow. And then I go to class and there's all kinds of resistant stuff. And some of it's a little more nuanced. Like, well, you know, if I swap out race for gender, then none of this applies to me, right? Or other kinds of things of, you know, like, not, you know, I grew up on a farm. None of my family's ever been to college. We, we, I had to work hard every single day. I got up at 4 a.m. every day for high school. Who are you to tell me that I'm privileged, right? And all of these different kinds of resistance things, right? And trying to think too more about why is it, right, that something like a white privilege narrative, like, landed for me, like why that made sense, why that had explanatory power, and why doesn't it have explanatory power for a whole bunch of folks that we say are the same, right? White people. And and so that was kind of my, like, that was the moment that I really kind of shifted my work from this this kind of like Marxist kind of political economy of education sort of orientation project that I thought I was going to be doing, kind of like a a follow the money kind of project to, I got to get smarter about white folks. I'm really interested in the racist ways white people articulate their anti-racism or the racist justifications they give for their anti-racism, right? So something like, well, I just feel so bad for these kids. You know, they come back from the weekend and I can tell they haven't had enough to eat. And so, you know, that's why I try to have lots of snacks and things like that in my classroom. Oof, what's going on there? How can we actually think about that? And like, again, kind of with that materialist or more Marxist orientation, like what is she actually doing? She's giving food to kids who are hungry and, and kids who want food. Why is she doing it for a whole whole of white supremacists and historically oppressive reasons, right? And so how is it that we actually navigate that, right? What is happening in school spaces? Because we're so, I think, in my field at least, we are worried a lot more about how teachers think and orient and sort of explain what they're doing than the actual material outcome of their work. And so this is kind of where I'm going in in the, the book project I'm working on now is really trying to think about, you know, I think we've been waiting too long for critical consciousness, right? Or we, we think about critical consciousness as this prerequisite. Like you need to have this kind of, you know, articulated sense of self and your own complicity and your own marginalizations and your own privileges. You need a sense of planetary humanism or communism or, you know, radical socialism or kind of whatever, like this destination that you're trying to get to. And now once you have all of that fully worked out and fully theorized, you can put that into practice, right? Now, now you're ready for praxis. I think waiting for that kind of moment is a great recipe for stasis and why it, it's really felt to me like our work, particularly at least in terms of like anti-racism and education, 
there's all kinds of discussion about white supremacy on the news and things like that, and that feels different. But what are we actually doing in schools? How different is it, right? Where have we seen movement on, say, the discipline gap, right? That's the the overabundance of students of color that are referred and suspended in K-12 schools. Hasn't moved, right? What are we doing around the educational debt um, and these different ways that we're thinking about standardized test scores? Hasn't moved. If anything, it's actually been exacerbated, and COVID is about to just blow up what's been happening there. Uh, if you all indulge it, I, I, I want to tell this story. So, because I think it's a, a nice way of sort of like breaking down what's actually happened in the last year and a half. So, quick juxtaposition. My neighbors, two houses that way, are uh, it's a working class black family, uh, multi generational family, and they've got some cousins who live with them. It's a real fun group of boys. Age range is basically like third grade to like eighth grade. Right. And I'd, I'd see them, you know, quite often and stuff like that and breaks during school, walking up to the corner store that's just around the corner and whatever else and, and kind of, you know, hanging out, doing outside stuff, being loud, having fun and, and whatever and, and good for them. You know, we'd say hi and, you know, keep our masks on and whatever. Juxtapose that four houses that way uh, was a pod of uh, more middle class white fourth graders. Those parents had gotten together, actually hired two of my students at Rhodes, two white educational studies majors with you know stellar GPAs and all kinds of experiences with students to do their in-person sort of coaching for their Zoom online classes. So let's think about that for a quick second. I've got working class black students who are doing remote learning with a remote instructor. I've got middle class white students who have three instructors, if I count the online mediated teacher and the two teachers that are actually there with them in person, right? And you know, a sort of homogenous group that I'm learning with. Y'all, if I only have four students and three teachers and all of us have the same class background and all of us have the same kind of like cultural lineage and, and connection and context of the city, that's better than school. That's so much better than school in terms of the one-on-one kinds of mediation stuff that I can do, the, the scaffolding, the advanced, like I can recognize so much faster when you've got something figured out and give you more advanced work than when I've got 28 students and they're all on Zoom, right? So not only I, do I think we're going to see, you know, kind of like writ large, there's going to be this big drop in standardized test scores and that's going to give all kinds of, you know, neoliberal permission to things like Pearson to take even, you know, more billions out of us in terms of testing and so on and so forth. But lots of, you know, it's, achievement gap, educational debts are just compounding, compounding, compounding in COVID here. And that's been, you know, and just like, this is my, you know, mixed race, diverse little neighborhood here in in Memphis, Tennessee, and all of that's just happening right here. Think about that in more affluent spaces. Think about the kinds of educational opportunities that folks with means have been able to access at the same time as we know that the quality and the engagement and what it's felt like to be in school in this all remote space for working class folks, for folks of color, is just exacerbating even farther. And so that's, you know, there's more work to do there. There's there's a whole lot more to engage. But I think recognizing that that's what's happening here, you know, that, that we can sort of code all of that as this digital divide, which just doesn't even get close to scratching the surface around what's materially happening that's reinforcing the same old oppressions, the same old white supremacy, the same old class privilege. That's right. Yeah. Well, Zach, thanks so much for joining us and for having this conversation with us. Super, super helpful. And like you tell really expansive and gripping stories in the in the course of answering our questions. So I just wanted to thank you for joining us. I appreciate the opportunity and, you know, appreciate this podcast and the, and the work that y'all are doing, right? So it's kind of a special thing to find other people who want to talk about pedagogy um, right. and really like sincere and serious and politically informed ways. So I'm a fan. I've been uh, 
been hyping the podcast and, and will continue <laughs> to do so. So thank you all for this work and for the opportunity to chat. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate Thanks it. so much. Well, wow. so that was a super interesting conversation. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. 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 I really like the kind of approach to like just asking students what would help them in terms of increasing access and combating issues of inequality and oppression that students are facing. I think sometimes a lot of the discussion about pedagogy and about like serving students and outcomes sometimes takes place a bit removed from the students whom we are supposedly teaching and serving. Mm -hmm. And so like there's such like sometimes high level right, pedagogy discussions that happen totally apart from students. And I really, you know, I do this in my own teaching, but I, I do think it's super important to bring students in to that process as people who know what they need better sometimes than we do. Yeah. You know, we've had other people who've talked about, uh, checking in. But what I really loved about what Zachary mentioned was that, that idea he said, what are you losing sleep on? What do you really want to know about and why can't we make it part of the course? So mm -hmm. to me, it's kind of like, not just, Hey, what do you, you know, like, how is the class going? But what are you losing sleep on? What are you passionate about that you want to really sort of fan the flames of? Mm -hmm. I'm going to start asking people that just as my like intro question, <laughs> like, hi, I'm Ashley. And nice to meet you. What are you losing sleep about these days? Well, then you would really kind of like have some type of mechanism to make sure that the content you're going through is really important is like, you know, applied to their life. I don't know exactly how that would apply to maybe some of the non justice oriented or critical oriented classrooms. But it's still a very interesting line of questioning, which I think is pretty unique in relationship to other folks that we've spoken to. At least it was implied. He made it very explicit. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, you know, one of the points that I think is really helpful that he made about the non-social justice oriented content fields mm -hmm. is that like the production of knowledge takes place inside a society that is saturated with these issues. And mm -hmm. so we can just like do a better job of illuminating that process. So like if this entire field is created by and for white men, whether that's like mathematics or physics or political science or whatever it is, like we can problematize that and think about critically what are the conditions of the elaboration of this field of knowledge? And that is bringing in some of these concerns about justice and equity, uh -huh. even if the content is like, I don't know, how to build a bridge or differential calculus or whatever. Yeah, I thought that was a very useful distinction, right? He said something about uh, how there's content, right? You can focus on content, but also you can focus on how your class dynamics or the historical class dynamics and move accordingly. I love the example that he gave of, of how he thinks more intentionally about how students can choose their own partners in mm -hmm. projects. Because, you know, our students are just going over and, and using some of the same inherited prejudices and biases that we all are familiar with. Totally. So to me, I thought that was a very useful distinction between content and sort of historical class dynamics. Mm -hmm. You can intervene upon both. And I think that's nice because it gets us to thinking about some of the non-social justice critical spaces, you know, like, you know, STEM or 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 things that you would think that are more conventional and not necessarily justice oriented. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, the, the thing that stuck out for me, and, and I liked how he said it because it was quite provocative, right? When he said, I asked the students to be selfish about their anti-racism. Oh, mm-hmm. I know, right? It's a bit provocative. So uh, I get it. I get, I get what he's saying. But I think at the core of what he's getting at is something that a lot of the other folks we've spoken to are also getting at, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, this isn't a feel-good project of justice, mm-hmm. right? It's not like a passion project or a hobby. But in fact, by not being exposed to critical race theory, to other perspectives that have otherwise been marginalized, we're actually inhibiting our own growth. We're inhibiting, mm-hmm. or as you know, um, Zachary would say, he said that they're limiting their own life chances. Mm-hmm. They're distorting their own humanity. They're limiting what is possible for them. So to me, I like this because it kind of gives a sense that there's no position of innocence, mm-hmm. right? That we're all implicated in some type of system. And as a result, you have to position yourself in this knowledge power. So to me, it's not, you know, obviously he's not saying be selfish in a bad way, but he's saying don't allow yourself to be located or don't pretend to be located outside of the power dynamics in which Mm -hmm. you're carrying out that research or thinking. So to me, I like this idea that we're all implicated. I like this idea that my life is being inhibited because I'm not attentive to marginalized voices that aren't necessarily my own, but we're mm-hmm. still in the same society. We're still making up the same community. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that. So like on the structural, like in the macro, as a theoretical commitment, I'm totally mm-hmm. down with this. I like absolutely believe this <laughs> to be true, right? I think it, for me, like coming out of a tradition of like reading people like Franz Fanon and Aimé mm-hmm. Césaire, where like it is the colonizer's sort of society and worldview that is damaged and damaging, not just to the people who are being oppressed, but also to their own psyche and their own, right? It is a terrible, like you have to be doing terrible violence to your own sense of humanity to be watching and participating in oppression as a participant in the the sort of oppressor group. For sure, I think that's true. And But I also like sometimes worry about practically how to implement this in ways that then don't recenter like whiteness or the oppressed group. Or like, Mm -hmm. like when we say something like be selfish about your anti-racism, I don't want anti-racism to be for the sake of white people. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, I think there's like, and and I don't, I don't at all think that that's what Zachary was saying, but I think there's like a really juicy, like complicated way of taking this principle and trying to make it, you know, to implement it, I think. Yeah. It it seems like there's a really interesting tension there that I also grapple with because, you know, I I do work with indigenous communities and you often see students. And I think Zachary was alluding to this where they're sort of thinking like kind of a a saviorist mentality that they Mm -hmm. can come in and either be a, a mouthpiece for the marginalized or the voiceless quote unquote and sort of slide out of the picture and just completely allow them to sort of channel through them. But we know that that's not possible. But at the same time, as you're mentioning, you know, when when I tell students that if you're in the room, there's a reason why you're in the room and you have skills and uh, things that you bring to the table and you're influencing the space. But if you swing too far in the pendulum, it means that the whole research is about you, which has actually been the history, the oppressive history of research which is not to allow other lived experiences and other voices come into the fore and actually take on the mantle of expert. So I think, I think you're absolutely right that there's a really difficult tension there. 
a really difficult tension to navigate. Yeah, I think like you know to be quite honest, like it's a tension that I think I'm continuously being like reflective on in navigating. Like this isn't something that I'm like, oh, I've got the right way to fit, you know, mm-hmm. like to figure out exactly what the correct balance is in all situations and how to attend to that tension with my students all the time. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's complicated to both drive home this point that the existence of oppression in a society is itself damaging to all of the life that inhabits that society. Mm-hmm. And right. Like we can, we have to like, I don't know, move beyond this, the way that being a part of an oppressor group also wants you to center yourself all the yeah, time. That makes sense. Yeah. This is where um, I know I draw from uh, in my work, Ann Tickner, who has this great mm-hmm. article in 2005, What's Your Research Paradigm, I think it is. But she talks about how there's four characteristics to a, a feminist methodology. She says, one, it's about asking feminist questions. So like about power. Two, it's about being useful to the communities that you learn from and serve. Three, that you see knowledge as emancipatory. You know, you can have a conversation about what emancipatory is. Mm-hmm. Um, but lastly, it, it has a, a practice of reflexivity. And I mm-hmm. think that's kind of what we're pointing at, yeah. right? This idea that there's this constant reflection. Well, it's more than reflection. It's systematic reflection upon the positions of power and the, the relationships of power that we find ourselves in. So like no doubt, right, this is a, a sort of work in progress and no doubt we should have greater insights the further we go and the more experiences we have in the field and with research more generally. So the last thing I would mention is that I loved how Zachary pointed to Bell Hook's notion of this classroom, right? The classroom mm-hmm. as a paradise can be created. And I looked it up and, and the quote is that the academy is not paradise, but learning is a place where paradise can be created. Nice. And so this really resonates with me because we know that when we're navigating the academy, especially in the space that we're creating right now, which is about decolonial and intersectional pedagogy, right? Like the academy hasn't fully embraced what we're talking about. So I'm mm-hmm. sure many of our listeners have also had some sort of uh, challenge in sort of making this conversation present in their own spaces. So it's not necessarily the academy that's paradise. But learning is a place where paradise can be created. And that, to me, explains why I I pour so much time into the students that I have. And I find so much joy in the spaces of learning that we can create. But I think also our time here now also shows that we can find joy in learning outside of the classroom about how to create spaces of learning for others. Yeah, I like this idea, not to aggrandize what we're doing on the podcast too much, but I like the idea that what we're doing through talking to all of our guests and to each other is like strategies for paradise building is like maybe another way to think oh, about what we're up to. That's so good. Strategies for like joy and paradise building. I'm into that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, I think a lot of us who do radical pedagogy do it because we believe that there is emancipatory, joyful, transformative possibilities in the act of like learning and expanding, you know, what we know and how we know it. And I think that's a really helpful, like touchstone or like North star maybe to use in evaluating what we're doing. Like, is this paradise building or is it not? I love it. Is it paradise building? Well, on that really lovely paradise note, 
Thank you all for joining us. We hope you're creating your own paradise spaces out in your own classrooms, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. Pedagogies for Peace, Intersectional and Decolonial Teaching was made possible by the support of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. The music is by David Hazardous, and the podcast is produced and distributed by Hannah Heinzaker. You can find all the episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.